an extraordinary prophecy in some ways, and we're going to be studying it over the next few weeks. I'm going to read chapter 1 of Hosea and then chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a, a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rohamah for I will no longer show love to the house of the Lord, I shall, uh, that I should at all forgive him. Lo, Rahama means not loved. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by sword, by bow, sword or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord our God. After she had weaned Lo, Rahama, Goma had another son, then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her. For fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will wait for you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord, to his blessings in the last days. Let's pray. As every time when we open the Scriptures, Lord, we have to ask for your help. Without your help we can understand nothing. With your help, we can understand all things. So we pray that uh, as we study these ancient words, that they would come alive and fresh to us and lead us to Jesus Christ and lead us to faith. We pray it in his name. Amen. It's also wonderful, really. The uh, future King of England 
meets a beautiful English rose and they fall in love and marry. It was fairy tale stuff. Fabulous riches, the wedding of the 20th century. Wonderful love story. But I wonder, did they know what love is? Who can ever forget the moment when the newly engaged Charles and Diana were asked whether they were in love? Do you remember it? She said quickly, yes. To which her husband-to-be added, whatever love is. But we know what love is, don't we? If there is one thing that has been thoroughly explored in the last generation or so, it is love. As the tragedy of that particular marriage unfolded, we actually know where our sympathies primarily lie. Charles's attitude to the marriage was thoroughly Victorian, basically, wasn't it? It transpires that he was... Uh, uh, in the first place, only being dutiful in getting married, and he hoped that duty would sustain the marriage. After all, wasn't Diana's favourite hymn, I vow to thee, my country? It was only of secondary importance whether they, they um, happened to be in love. Only of secondary importance that Charles uh, uh, took a secret mistress. After all, that was the Victorian way. Marriage was about dutifully producing offspring for the next generation, not being in love. Now, we could have told Charles, couldn't we? We could have told him that that is not love. We know what love is. We saw it in Diana. We, we saw her hugging children and AIDS victims. We, and we knew that was love. We learned about her traumatic search for love through unsuitable liaison after unsuitable liaison. And we felt with her because many others of us, of her generation, of the same generation, had gone through the same sorts of traumas in our personal search for love. Finally, we hoped she would find love that we instinctively sense is out there. Finally, it seems she had. She seemed so happy, so relaxed. And then she died. I think, you know, the whole nation mourned in the way that it did, partly because Diana's death symbolized the fate of our painful search for love. She was like us, searching for love. She was like us, uh, being deeply traumatized in that process. And like we fear, she actually never did enjoy love. But then I wonder whether we really do know what love is. See, that's my great fear for my generation. I fear we don't really know what love is. In fact, over the last uh, 150 years, our understanding of love has swung between the Charles and Diana extremes like, like, a, like a massive pendulum. You know, it began... In the, in the Victorian era, 
where the emotional side of love was specifically played down. Love was all about self-control and discipline and doing the right thing. It was about duty. But actually, right back in the Victorian era, that, the pendulum started to swing in the other direction. People reacted against this Prince Charles style of dull, dutiful love and sought to embrace a more emotionally free lifestyle. At the beginning of this century, that, oh no, not this century, last century now, the 20th century, that mood crystallized in a group called the Bloomsbury Group, who were very prominent before and after the, the First World War. They focused around Virginia Woolf. They included all sorts of famous figures like uh, Lytton Strachey and E.M. Forster and the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the, uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes and many, many others. For them, love actually was, was primarily an emotion which was stifled and suppressed by the straitjacket of conventional morality that they were determined to break free from. Their, their vision was of love free and unfettered. And that vision, though, uh, it caused horror, actually, in the early part of the century, slowly and definitely took hold through the 20th centuries until, until in the 1960s it, it finally burst out of the closet in the form of the, uh, the hippie movement who chanted slogans like make love, not war, and sang the Beatles song, all you need is love. And most of us here, like Diana, grew up with this idea that love is all about emotional yearning and intimacy. It's an affair of the heart. The only alternative that we can see is that uh, uh, Victorian concept of emotionless duty. And we would rather choose to follow the Barry White vision of love. <laughs> Actually, we're in, a, in an age when it's becoming transparently clear that neither of those visions really works. It's obvious for a long time that uh, dull duty never worked. Actually, it was Lytton Strachey of the uh, Bloomsbury Group who wrote a famous book called Eminent Victorians in which he exposed for the first time the underlying hypocrisy of Victorian drawing rooms. We know all about that. We know that form of love doesn't work. We could have told Charles his marriage would be a disaster if that was all it was based on. But we find it a lot harder to come to terms with the idea that our modern view of love has failed us too. And yet we live in a society where it has profoundly failed us. Now we say, don't we, that if the love has gone from the marriage, then we must feel free to start again. Despite the fact, you know, that the majority of people on the second marriage find that they say that they were happier in their first. We say that children in an unhappy marriage will suffer, and it's kinder of the parents, in fact, 
who, for whom the, the, the emotion of love has gone, to separate, despite the fact that there, is, uh, there are numerous pieces of evidence, actually, which show that parental separation is far more traumatic than the most discordant of marriages that somehow manage to stay together. We say that everyone has a right to seek a new partner because everyone has a right to search to be happy in a, in, a, in a perfectly happy relationship together, actually quietly overlooking the fact that there is a vast increase in the number of single-person homes in this country because there are so many middle-aged people who are spending the latter years of their life completely lonely and utterly unhappy as a result of this free exchange of relationships. We sing about love, we read about love, we watch films about love. Whole industries are kept going by our obsession with love and actually, frankly, we don't know what love is. Why? Because we don't know what God's love is. You know, way back in the Victorian age, the idea of love as duty came about not because of the Christian faith, but because of a Victorian anxiety about their loss of Christian faith. The Victorians were worried, actually, that their loss of faith that was uh, gathering pace in the latter half of the 19th century would lead to anarchy. And they sought to replace Christianity quite specifically with duty. For instance, Mary Ann Evans, who's better known as the novelist George Eliot, used to say regularly how the idea of God was inconceivable, immortality was unbelievable, but duty, she said, was peremptory and absolute. And of course, that uh, uh, reaction against that idea of uh, duty it stemmed equally from a loss of Christian faith. The Bloomsbury group were predominantly atheists. The hippie movement sought to, to throw off the burden of Christian morality. Today, our definition of love owes very little, if anything, to Christianity. Unfortunately, through those years, the church has so often simply been a barometer of uh, the national mood of love. In the Victorian age, the church so too easily became stuffy and formal and overemphasized duty. And uh, since the great shift in the 20th century, the church has so easily uh, tended to, to uh, uh, slip over into vapid sentimentality. The only way to have a real idea of what God's, or what love is, is to discover God's love. And the dimensions of God's love, I think, are nowhere, at least in the Old Testament, set out more clearly than in this book of Hosea that we're going to be looking at over a number of weeks. We're going to learn, actually have to relearn very often because of the, the, the reflexes and expectations that are built up in our lives. We're going to have to relearn what real love is. 
Now this morning we can do no more than, uh, than introduce Hosea in many ways. You'll have to come back over the next few weeks to start to, to, to build layer on layer until we really understand what God's love is all about. But I want us to glance um, relatively quickly at uh, the first three chapters of Hosea to start to get an idea of the true dimensions of God's love. There I think uh, we, can, we, can, we can sum it up by saying that God's love is not just about dull duty at all, but nor is it just about sentimental emotion. God's love can be best sum summarized by speaking of it as passionate commitment. Look at how God teaches it, though. Extraordinarily, God tells the prophet Hosea that he can best understand and communicate God's love by marrying an unfaithful wife. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord began to speak through Hosea, and the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land he is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Hosea lived in the, the north of the kingdom of Israel in, the, in about the 8th the century before Christ. And it was a time, actually, of relative prosperity and peace. And yet, just like today, it was a time when the nation had turned away from God substantially. Of course, many people in that nation would have looked at their material prosperity and said, well, we're not doing too badly. Perhaps those of a, a more religious orientation may have tut-tutted a little and commented on how sad God must be at the present state of affairs of the nation. But of course, God is love, isn't he? God still loves us, doesn't he? God says, oh yes, Israel, I do still love me. And let me tell you about my love in terms that you might understand. Hosea, go and marry a cheap tart and then find out what it feels like. Then you'll know what my love is going through right now. So Hosea and Israel then are going to begin the process of learning what real love is about. And chapter 1 effectively explores the agony of love. We see that agony in the names that uh, Hosea gives to his children, verses 3 and 4. He married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. There is long-term pain in God's relationship with Israel. He's recalling an event a long time ago when, in fact, a very bloodthirsty warrior who became king, Jehu, massacred the whole of the, the existing royal family at that time at a place called Jezreel. Actually, God was using Jehu to punish that previous uh, family. But Jehu's delight in blood... had pained God deeply. And like any of us who have been hurt in love, we know we don't forget it quickly. 
Now says God, this family was conceived, came to the kingdom to, to be king in blood, and it won't be long before they leave the monarchy in blood. Hosea lived at a time when uh, Jer Jeroboam, a descendant of Jehu, was on the throne in the north of the kingdom. But this little boy, before he came of age, would see Jeroboam removed. And before he was an old man, he would see the whole of the northern kingdom destroyed. And my pain has long-term consequences, says God. I will visit these people in justice. Then the name of the second child actually becomes a little more personal. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her lo Rahama, not loved, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. It may be significant that uh, this daughter is not said to have been born to him, to Hosea, just to have been born. Now, has, uh, has Goma, in fact, started behaving true to type? Is this child actually not Hosea's? Certainly she is uh, named with this uh, intensely personal name, not loved. Because that is so often the consequence of the child of a wayward wife. If you've had contact with little children from deprived backgrounds, you'll know that some of them almost ha seem to have that written across their foreheads, not loved. We know that pain that comes from betrayed relationships. It's current in our society. Well, that pain is God's pain too. The third name makes the reason for this uh, breakdown of love very, very clear. Verse 8. After she had weaned Lo-Rahama, Goma had another son, and the Lord called him Lo-Ami, meaning not my people, for you are not my people, and we, I am not your God. Uh, Again, we, we, we know this. We know how hard it is for stepfathers to love their stepchildren. Still more so, actually, when that child perhaps has been fathered by someone else whilst we were still married to their mother, as this child may well have been. Do you know, in uh, paternity tests, uh, in some paternity tests, it's been discovered that up to one in ten children within apparently stable marriages, are not fathered by the husband. We know that pain. Our society is full of it. Well, God says that pain is my pain too. That that you are experiencing in your society, I am experiencing in my relationship to you as long-term hurts build up over the years and generation after generation repeat the same sins as, as people turn away from me and still blithely expect me to love them. 
as people actually abandon me and then try to pretend they are still my people. They are not my people. I cannot love them. I must visit judgment in my justice on them. I am angry, says God, not because somehow my love has failed, but because my love is real. One thing our modern world says it knows about is how to deal with situations where people are not loved, where people are not my people. Walk away, don't they? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what God says he, do, he will do. We understand that in one sense. Except that he doesn't say he will do that alone. Verse 7. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah. I will save them, not by sword, by bow, sword, or battle, but by horses and ho or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. Oh yes, perhaps we understand that. He's been addressing the northern kingdom. Perhaps he will walk away from these rebellious people and back to his home people the more righteous southern group of Judah. But no, verse 10, he discounts that. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the northern people of Israel will be reunited. That's what he's going to do. He feels that agony. He wants us to know that agony. He wants us to know that the emotional pain that so many people feel in this world is his pain. And yet he is not going to give up on love. He is going to somehow bring those people back himself. Chapter 2 explores how he's going to do that. We'll see a lot more of it in the later parts of Hosea, but let's just uh, glance at chapter 2 to move on from the agony of love to God's strategy of love. First thing that uh, God says that he must do is in fact bring out into the open how far we have gone from him. Verse 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife. I am not her husband. The word rebuke is a, is a word for formal legal accusation. He says, let's go to a divorce court, shall we? Frankly, it'll be an open and shut case, a pretty simple job for the, for the judge. The evidence is overwhelming. She walked out on the marriage years ago. Before we could ever come back to God, you see, we must see that. There is no point if we feel estranged from God, if we are turning away from God, if we don't yet feel that we know God, there is no point in papering that over and just saying, oh, well, anyway, God loves me. 
Now, it must be brought out into the open. If we are not loving Jesus Christ with our heart and mind and soul and strength, we are not his people. We are not loved. Let's take it to court. Test it there if we want to. Second in, in, in God's strategy in bringing his people back, is actually to let us see the full consequences of our actions. Verse 2, the second half. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. In other words, he's saying, she's been privately naked with another man. But of course, that passed off as a romantic secret tryst between two lovers. Let her find out what the ultimate consequence of sharing her nakedness where she should not is like. Let her walk down the street naked. God does that to whole society sometimes. I wonder whether he's even doing that for, for us as we've moved from the hidden secret hypocrisies of the Victorian age to, to the open and blatant shamefulness of today. Perhaps he is saying, when will your eyes be opened? When will you see the shame of turning away from me? How shameful do you have to become? Sometimes too, in his strategy to win us back, God, God helps us uh, in, in, a, in a perverse sort of way. He blocks our path to stop us in our headlong quest for satisfaction from some other source. Look at verses 5 to 7. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore... I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She'll chase after her lovers but not catch them. She'll look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I'll go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Sometimes, as well, he has to make it plain to us that the good things that we're enjoying were not actually the product of our wayward lifestyle at all, but actually entirely his good gifts that for a while he was generously still giving us whilst we were ignoring him. Eventually he has to withdraw those good things to show us that the, the, that the false directions where we were teach, seeking satisfaction never in fact would satisfy us. Verse 8 she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the, the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. Somehow God is going, trying to open our eyes whether it be to stop us in our headlong long search for other things, or whether it be to withdraw his uh, good gifts from us, so that finally we will, re will realise the bankruptcy of all the other things we, see we seek. 
I remember very vividly a few years ago meeting a, a girl of about my age who after graduating had uh, got a job in the city in which she earned massive amounts of money. And she had a wonderful life. She had so many friends, she didn't know what to do. She had a smart flat, she had a fast car. One day she was unexpectedly made redundant. She lost everything, in fact. She said the most painful thing of all was that almost every single friend she had never spoke to her again. As you see, the lifestyle she'd been living was not the good life after all. No, this was the love of the paramour who is only after one thing. And when he's got it, he's off. Sometimes we need to see that. Sometimes disasters come our way to open our eyes. Sometimes God in his grace actually brings hard times to us. So that finally, 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 we see that money and success and that wonderful sexual relationship and all those other things that we were seeking were empty and turned back to God. Perhaps uh, you feel like you've got to that point. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps, perhaps you even walked in here with a rather naive view of God's love, which you had instinctively sensed was rather fading now because of personal trauma or, or your life getting harder and harder. Perhaps you now know you misunderstood his love. Could it be that he wants you to learn of a deeper love? Could it be that he wants you to feel his personal pain of rejection as he explores it in chapter 1? Could it be that he wants you to see the folly of your life, the ruin that is in store for you if you continue as you are? Could it be, actually, that what has been happening in your life has been to bring out the fact that you are profoundly estranged from him anyway. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. You know, perhaps you actually have been coming to church all your life. Perhaps you're from a Christian family. Perhaps you've been baptized as a believer by immersion. Perhaps you're a church member. Perhaps you've got all the certificates to prove it. Perhaps actually nobody else has yet begun to suspect the, the, the emptiness and the barrenness that you have sensed slowly growing in your heart. Could it be that God has allowed you to get this far, to this point? Because he actually really loves you. Not with that superficial love that everybody talks about, but with real love. 
There's actually a surprise at the end of chapter 2 because the strategy is not just to withdraw good things. After God has withdrawn from his rebellious people and made them feel what it is like to turn away from him, extraordinarily he comes not in judgment but as a lover. Verse 14, therefore, and in this court case we think it's going to say, I'm going to condemn her. Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Verse 18, in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. God's love is not the love of dull duty which simply keeps going in his relationship, but nor is it the fickle emotion which turns away and never comes back. It is a passionate commitment, a commitment which does not easily walk away, but which is not satisfied until it elicits personal love from those he woos so that we can be renewed and all the innocence and dirt and hypocrisy and disappointment that has made our hearts so sour and so dull and so distorted so that that can be wiped away and as he puts it, she will sing as in the days of her youth. That is God's intention. And in chapter 3, from the strategy of love, we must just look very briefly at the cost of love. Because Hosea is going to learn that that sort of love is only ever won at great cost. First of all, Hosea, uh, uh, is, his marriage is going to be restored as a result of his initiative. But his initiative in, in being prepared to pay a massive price in his own reputation. Do you see what's happened to her? The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loved the Israelites, though they turned to other gods. Remember Jesus went to prostitutes to tell them the gospel even though he was reviled for it? God is not too proud to take the initiative in any one of our lives. In fact, the lower we feel we are, the more willing he is to come alongside. Goma had been reduced to the most wretched of people. Hosea was to go to her. He has to learn as well that love pays a physical price. Verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of bar uh, barley. Scrapes together, you can imagine him, gathering all that he's got and manages just about to find enough to buy back his ruined wife. 
Perhaps it was a mercenary second husband he was buying her from. Perhaps she'd sold herself into slavery. Perhaps actually it was her pimp. We don't know. But Hosea pays. And that payment was just a pale foreshadowing of the payment that Jesus Christ had to pay to purchase us, literally, for God. He had to pay with his life. He had to shed his own lifeblood on the cross to pay for our forgiveness. And he willingly did it. God's love pays a physical price too. And God's love pays the price of patience, the price of time. Verse 3, Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I will wait for you. It's actually not clear what the uh, Hebrew means, but what uh, uh, is clear is that uh, Hosea is not to force sexual relations on this woman. No, he has come to her. He has paid the price for her. He will hem her in, but he will not force himself back to her as his husband until she is willing. Because God's love pays that price too. God is prepared to be patient with us. Though we many, many times wander away, though we spend large parts of our lives wandering from him, still he is prepared to be patient. He has paid the price in Jesus Christ. He has come to us in Jesus Christ, prepared, in fact, to take the most lowly of positions on this earth and to be scorned and reviled for it. And he is prepared to wait. That is just the beginning of a taste of what God's love is like. So there remains just one question. Don't you want to enjoy that love? And you want to come back into a relationship with such a God and discover a depth of love which this world does not know of. Because the way is open. All we need to do is recognize our personal bankruptcy. I can do nothing to get myself right with God is recognize the price he paid. And finally to say, yes, please, love me like that.